Love music. Live sport. Talking football with Bill Young on Rock Sport Radio. Welcome to a very special Talking Football tonight on uh, World Mental Health Awareness Day. It's... Uh, <laughs> what was that look you gave each other there? What was going on with that? <laughs> it's a funny, funny look. It's a 70 years back. All right, OK. All right. <laughs> You'll meet my guests in a minute. Uh, but thank you for joining us tonight. Sorry about last night, but I had some problems uh, that I had to try and resolve. Uh, mainly getting here was one of them. Uh, but we're all sorted now, so uh, we're back to normal. Uh, except we're not a little bit. Jerry McCabe isn't with me. Chris Dolan's in the studio with me tonight, and we have a number of guests uh, to talk about mental health and mental welfare uh, within the world of football. We've spoken about it on many occasions, and we'll speak about it on many occasions more. I'm sure, uh, purely because it is something that is more prevalent than ever before. And it's something that we are now coming to grips with, at least in terms of talking about it, not in terms of remedying it and and satisfying all the needs of everyone, but in terms of talking about it. And today, uh, with 70 years of World Mental Health Foundation, uh, today is World Mental Health Day, and this year's theme is suicide prevention. Uh, I tweeted, if you saw it on my Twitter account earlier on, that that tonight's show is brought to us in association uh, with our our very good friends at Back On Side and uh, we're going to be talking to to Libby Emerson and uh, Graham Wilson who have been with us before Uh, Libby first of all let's let's talk and just recap if we may Um, and if you can get a wee bit closer to that microphone it would be helpful for me Um, let's talk and recap if we may on how Back On Side came about Um, Back On Side started through a personal reason with myself which I haven't actually shared um, very much or openly so if you don't mind tonight I'm, I'm not going to share that No, it's fine, um, I didn't ask you last time personal things are personal things um, and I'm not going to ask you now um, but basically in, in a roundabout way a footballer saved my life um, and that's where the kind of incentive came to really push forward within the football community because it highlighted to me how much mental health is a problem within football and within most sports but especially football so that was back in 2017 and it became an official charity in January 2018. So it's still I, I, very young. I, and the last time you were on here, of course, we, we talked and we talked fairly candidly mm-hmm. about a number of different things. And on the back of that, you, you tweeted that three players had got in touch with you. So yeah. obviously, the more that people know what you do and how you do it, um, the better it is for people in general. Um, the one thing that I, I was going to say, which I think is quite important as well, is you you said that you were pretty much on the end of the phone 24-7 for anybody that needed you. That's that's quite a commitment. Yeah, it's, it's still the same. I actually haven't slept uh, last night at all. I had two, two players, an instant earlier on in the evening, and then during the night, um, and then we were out today doing a talk, so I've not actually been to bed yet. Were those players players that had already been in touch with you, or were they two new players? Uh, one had previously been in touch, but had dropped off touch mm-hmm. with me because he was embarrassed um, and didn't felt that he shouldn't be asking for help but then got to a stage where he wanted to ask for help again. And is that something Is that something that you find is a common thread that goes through with people that you deal with that there's an embarrassment factor that stops them from seeking the help that they, they obviously need even if it's just to speak to someone? Yeah, no, definitely, especially within, with men um, it'll take a, a good while a, a lot of guys will text first and they'll probably do it when they've got a drink in them and then in the morning or whatever when they, they 
I sobered up. It's like, I didn't mean that, so I just forget anything I said. But then it's up to me to continually check in with them and let them trust me enough that that help's available without having to to broadcast it or tell MD. Um, but they all, all, all they say is that they're embarrassed, they think they're a freak, um, they shouldn't cry, they shouldn't tell their partners, they shouldn't tell their friends because there must be something wrong with them and they're supposed to be a man and they're not supposed to have these feelings. And that's all the time and that's even with all the talk and all the chats. And, and the on. journal and the textbook that all of those things are written in is where? Because I've never seen it. Tell me where it is so that I can go to the library and get it out and, <laughs> and just say, you know, so that I'm clear on what I should mm-hmm. be doing as a man so that I know, you know, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't do the next thing. What's the name of this book? <laughs> There isn't, is there? No, so no. why would people think that? Is it because we stereotype people? And have we stereotyped people in society? I mean, probably back in the 40s and the 50s, that was very much what was expected of a man. But with the way that, that women obviously hold their own now in society, I, did, I don't know if you remember, there used to be a programme called Scottish Women and Kay Adams used to present yeah. it. And I was on with Kay one week uh, on STV for this and she invited me on because... She heard me talk about something and uh, we were talking on, on the air for another radio station that I was working for at the time, which was Scott FM. And uh, somebody phoned in and said something and, I, and we were talking about equality, sex equality. And they said, will men and women ever be sexually equal? And I said, no, absolutely not. Women couldn't afford the drop in status. And then Kay got me on to talk about it and, and, and we did. But I, I, I'm fascinated that People have got this checklist of what a man should be, why they should be it, and how they should be it. Um, and I, to be honest, is that one of the biggest barriers to break down? And how do you go about it? It's definitely the biggest barrier. I'm, I'm not actually sure how you go about it, to be honest. And that's, I thought that the amount of talking that we were doing and and getting people like Chris to to kind of be that figurehead and openly speak and let people see that like their heroes struggle as well would help and it, it definitely helps but it's it's not enough it's I, th- I think it has to be taught in schools i think mm. that's the only way that's going to stop this is by education in schools from primary primary age right up girls you've had a, a long career in professional football and i'm sure there's been people in the dressing room with you that have been suffering mental uh, ill health and, and their mental welfare hasn't been as good as it should be um but i guess until recently, it would be difficult for you to know who those people were and they didn't openly speak about it. Yeah, and I think, you know, the dressing room's a harsh environment to be in. Um, And I think, stereotypically, across the years, it's always been known for being very harsh. You know, players will will speak their minds. Um, You know, there'll be disagreements for whatever reason. So I can understand why, over the years, players probably haven't stepped forward because it's a big step to make. You know, working alongside you know Libby Graham, I can see the the benefits now of people just making that one step forward. It seems to be massive, um, and it's getting all off their chest. And even within dressing rooms now, what I see is they're becoming more welcoming um, across the board. You know, for there's a lot of young players now, very very young players, guys at 16 years old, mm-hmm. literally just out of, still at school. Some they're they're very naive and they're easily persuaded and bullied into things by older players but I see that now becoming you know less and less prevalent or prevalent throughout the full um, dressing room and you know nowadays I, I see it there's a lot more opportunity to, to step forward and a lot more companies like back on site available to, to pick up the phone to 
We've been talking over the, the, the years to the sports, to the football chaplains who are at pretty much every club and, and do a fantastic job. And they were saying that more than ever now, they're being approached by players to discuss problems and things like that. Uh, and they felt that because they were very much, they were seen as holy joes maybe. But that isn't what the chaplains are there to do. That's that's not what they're there to do. And we'll talk maybe a wee bit more about that a wee bit later on. But one of the things, Archie, one of your old bosses, was on with us two years ago. And we were talking to Archie about sports psychologists and things like that. And, and you know, how much of a role they played at clubs. And he was telling us about at Thistle when the sports psychologist came in initially nobody would speak to him and then they started sloping off secretly to see him so they started doing one-to-one appointments and after that he was amazed at how many different players he was seeing for a a certain length of time Um, I'm just wondering again is that down to the fact that they see it as very much a personal thing or they're hiding the fact so that they don't become a source of ridicule yeah and you know, going back to Archie, I think it was actually very good management from the way Archie put it across to the players. It, it made it very clear that you know, it was anonymous. You didn't have to go if you didn't want to. But if anybody had any problems, this this guy was there to speak to. So he didn't force anything onto players. And I think that's probably why, in the longer term, he got more players engaging with him because they didn't feel under pressure to, to go and see this guy. I think, to begin with, we all had a wee shot you know, going to see what, what it was all about. Curiosity, curiosity more than anything just players being curious you know and, and they just wanted to see you know another side of uh, the game whereas once it became a wee bit more serious and there wasn't a pressure for you to go if you felt you didn't have to go and see the guy you didn't have to if for whatever reason you know you had an issue you wanted to go and speak to him about it, it was made very clear that who the guy was where he was what time you could meet him and Archie actually made it very easy and mm-hmm. very accessible for players so I'm I'm I mean, I didn't even know, and I couldn't tell you how many players went to see him. After the initial curious part, I, I couldn't tell you, um, which is a, probably a good sign. But um, I think it, at the time it was good management because it wasn't forced upon anybody. And you see now that you know, more and more players seem to be coming forward to, to you know, come to sleep back on side because... And there's obviously problems there. Graham, let me bring you in, because obviously you're involved with, with Back On Side with Libby. And let me ask you about your involvement, how you got involved, and, and what you you try and bring to this now. I got involved um, just over 18 months ago. I'm, a, a, I'm very proud to say I'm, I'm a patron, um, along with uh, here. Uh, and I get involved at a golf day. Um, I'm an alcoholic. Um, and I drank alcoholically because of my mental health. Um, alcohol uh, and drugs took away my mental health. It was a solution. But was it? No, it wasn't in the end up because when I got sober and I tried to commit suicide as well. Um, so it wasn't. I was getting back to what you were saying about the stereotypical thing. That nearly killed me because I was an alcoholic and I'm from Mogai and I can't be an alcoholic if I'm from Mogai. And I wasn't covered in my own body fluid, so I also couldn't be an alcoholic. So the pride was going to kill me because I would not seek help and there was no way I was going to ask anybody for any help. So that that stereotypical thing, I was what I was that man that, that that wouldn't ask for help because I was too proud. I thought I would be classed as being daft, being a weirdo and um 
the, the interview that I'd done with Back Onside, Libby's just recently found out that when I'd done the interview with Back Onside, I was suicidal. And I said a phrase, and, and, and it'll stick with me, that I remember talking to the guy when we were at Gladoch Golf Club, and it was a balcony, and I'd said, and usually I would be looking at the height of this balcony to, to think about jumping off it to commit suicide, but here I am looking out at the beautiful sunset. I wasn't. I was looking down because mm-hmm. I wanted to die. I didn't want to be there, but I didn't know how... At that point, I was so frustrated with myself because I had got sober. I had thought I'd done everything I needed to do and I couldn't understand why I was still feeling the way that I was feeling, why I didn't like myself, you know, why I thought I was fat, why I thought my hair wasn't... Everything was going on that I, um, I didn't want to be here, but I didn't know how to approach that. So was it just an overall general lack of self-esteem that had, had caused you issues? Did you become obsessive about your appearance and, and things like that? In sobriety, yes, but when I was drinking, no, because right. the last thing on my mind um, when I was drinking was how I looked. Why did you Why did you turn to drink rather than seek professional help? Um, was I, it this embarrassment thing? Was it this, I'm a man, I shouldn't do it, a living old guy, it's not expected here? It was At the time, I didn't, I honestly, well, I never found out my mental health was bad until uh, two years ago. I've been six years, um, six years sober, and only two years ago, two and a half years ago, did I kind of realise how bad my mental health had been. So that whole time, from the age of 30, I'm 40, 42 just now, from the age of 30 to 36 mm-hmm. my life was unfurling I was uh, numerous attempts in my own life I should be dead and I'd taken many many medications that 10 pills would have killed me and I took 52 I was in a coma you know so I, I, I should be dead and every single time I came out of hospital I drank again you know, so I hadn't I had no reason to say that it was my mental health. I couldn't understand it was my mental health. But but wasn't it one of these things which is almost self-perpetuation? Because you'd, you'd gone down two routes. And, and the, I, I know about alcoholism because my mother-in-law was an alcoholic mm. and, and she wreaked havoc in our lives for God knows how many years. But the one thing that you find about anyone who's addicted to anything is that they're the last to admit it. I remember Jimmy Graves coming out with a, a great saying when they were talking about George Best. And I knew George Best not particularly well, but more than casually. And Jimmy Graves once said, because uh, he was an alcoholic, or is an alcoholic, because you are an alcoholic, mm-hmm. um, he said, an alcoholic doesn't care whether they live or die, they care where their next drink's coming from. So you were kind of double whammied in a way, in as much as you had mental health problems, which you weren't aware of, that were being exacerbated by an addiction problem. Um, I mean, that's a hell of a route to come through. As I said, I should be dead, but I, I lost the ability to do everything. I lost the ability to love, which is a pretty dramatic statement. Uh, I'm married, I think I'm married 15 or 16 years, but uh, obviously, you know, 10 years of that, was, was, I was drinking quite heavily. In the last six years, I was in a bad way, and I had stopped loving everybody. I had stopped loving my wife, I had stopped loving my mum and dad, and, and for an only child to say that, is is pretty hard. I had only one concern, as as you said, is where that I, I had lost the value of money. So if I had twenty pound, I could have told you exactly how many pints that was. I didn't see twenty pound. I seen X amount of pints, you know. And 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 um, that's the way that I led my life. And and I didn't really care. I, unfortunately, you had to be on your backside for me to seek help. And I was on my backside many, many, many times. You know, I can I can sit here and tell you that 
I drank uh, a weed killer tops. I had a, a, a half pint of weed killer, um, and I topped up with lemonade because I was I was desperate f- for a drink, and I thought that'll do the job. A guy you might know, Paul Wilson, um, the ex Celtic player, was a landscape gardener. He was a family friend, and um, at the time I'd asked for weed killer to kill the bad gardener. I remember him saying to his a tablespoon of that will kill Hamden Park, Graham. And I forgot all about it. And it was one day I was in the cupboard and I had been, everything had been taken off me financially and, and everything like that. And I found it. And I thought, that's the job. You know, what person in their right mind mentally thinks that that's a good idea? You know, and then I'd love to say that the light bulb moment happened and, and, and everything, but I drank after that. You know, and, and I was, you know, I would be standing in a pub. Uh, at that age, 36, 35 I was, Bill, and um, I'm standing in a pub, I'm catheterised, uh, so I'm, I'm peering into a bag and I'm looking at everybody else in the pub saying, when I get as bad as him over there, I'm going to chuck it. <laughs> I'm 35 <laughs> Sorry, years Sorry, I away. shouldn't laugh, no, but I've seen, I've seen this before. It's... I, I remember my mother-in-law coming up to stay with us one Christmas and she intentionally picked a fight with everybody before we all went to bed and slept in the, the living room. And there was a drink on the sideboard and we got up in the morning and a bottle of sherry had gone. Mm-hmm. And she denied it was her. She was the only person in the room. Uh, but she denied it was her. And, and so I know where you're coming from. Libby, let me ask you a question. And there's, there, there's history's something that, that we can't change. But when we look back at the way we used to treat mental illness and mental health rather than mental illness, but mental welfare, let's call it that, it makes you wonder, and I suppose really it must be staggering at how many people like Graham, for example, we've lost over the years because we've not spoken about it, because we've not understood it, because we've not given it enough time uh, to be looked at and discussed. You know, one of the things, again, like alcoholics are the last, or drug people are the last to admit they've got a problem. People who are mentally unwell, especially with depression, are sometimes the last people to know about it. What are the telltale signs? What should people be looking for? I think just if, when people change their the way their daily routine. If um, I know when I was going through what I was going through, I I started to drink every night. I don't know if I told him this, but I I was on my own. Um, I would come home from work and to kind of drown out the things in my head and because I had nobody to offload to, I, I started to drink and it was my friend that picked it up on me saying that you've went from not drinking to all of a sudden drinking every night. Every time I talk to you, you've either had a bottle of wine or you've had a few vodkas. And I think it's just, if she hadn't pointed that out, I probably wouldn't have noticed that I probably kept going. So I think you have to look out for your friends if they if they haven't been drinkers before and they start doing things or they start going out an awful lot more or vice versa, if they're being a bit of a party animal and that changes and they come within themselves and they stop going out, that's another big telltale sign. Um, but personally, I think anybody that has a, a drink problem or a drug problem, there's a reason why they're doing it. So there's a mental health issue there. Mm. So that I think that's what people have to realise and not just jump straight away to think, oh, they're a, they're a druggie or they're an alcoholic. They have to ask... That's an those, underlying problem. Yeah, why are they Why are they drinking? Why are they taking drugs? It's not something... No, no normal person, that's not the right word, but you just wouldn't go and decide to do a line of coke. Or In your experience and the people you've dealt with thus far, and I know that you'll deal with a lot more before you're finished... Um, is alcohol or drugs 
go-to solution for them in their mind. Yes. I, I don't actually know MD that... A few, but not many, that don't at least turn to drugs. Um, but definitely, or have more sociable drinks and will say, oh, I'm drinking a bit more at the weekends to, to try and numb things out. Um, so, yeah, I, I, most people, I think, turn to that. Jules, let me come back to you, because obviously going back to the dressing room situation again, players are fitter, they look after themselves more than ever before. Uh, they're supervised in terms of diet better than ever before. Um, how difficult or how easy would it be for somebody who was maybe taking drugs or who was drinking to excess to come into training every day and hide it from players now? Would it be something that you would notice? Bearing in mind that addicts are extremely good at what they do in terms of hiding things. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, obviously. You know, we've become very clever of, of how to hide it. But I think now in modern football, because of how strict the, the diet nutrition is, how strict you've got Junior Mendes coming in, you know, sports sciences, they pick up on these things very quickly now. Um, but I think it's more to do with having the knowledge of well, why why would they be coming into training, reeking a drink? Or like they, they would nowadays. I think players would be quick enough to, if it happened once, fair enough, whatever. I think they would be quick enough now to pick up on it because how aware everybody seems to be coming of, of mental health. Um, and I think that's only a good thing. That you know, in years gone by, I'm sure it was probably the norm that you know players came in on a Monday morning and they'd been out all weekend. I don't think it happens now, so I think it should or it would be picked up a bit quicker. And now it's more about people actually knowing who to turn to and or players spotting it in other players and knowing and having that, that information. Let that me knowledge. stop you just very quickly because you've kind of started to preempt my next question for you, which is a really difficult question for you to answer. So I'll ask you it now. There's a player that you know is either doing drugs or drinking to excess and he's a teammate of yours. Nobody's picked up on it. You have. Do you go to the manager? I think if it was me personally, I think I would try and help on a personal level first. If he if if doesn't could. want that help, if that help just falls by the wayside, do you go to the manager? Yeah, I mean, I, uh -huh. I think... Come to back on side. I think now... <laughs> You'd I'm, refer. I've got oh, what a get-out clause. What a get-out clause. But, I mean, if, 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 if I didn't have a connection to, to back on side and, and I wasn't aware of it, the manager's probably the only person you could turn to because... But that in itself breaks a player's code in a wee bit, doesn't it? Does. it? And, it, and it, that's where I think... That's where the, the, there's so many dilemmas about this, guys, in terms of what you deal with, how you deal with it, when you deal with it. Yep, and exactly. And I think, you know, in, in dressing rooms, bravado's massive. You know, players like to think they're... Or some players like to think they're better than they are and mm -hmm. they're the type of people when they're not really these kind of people. So, um, you know, it, it could be difficult, but... I think if it got to that stage, if you know people's lives are on on the line, I think that's where you just put your swallow your ego, swallow your pride, and go and speak to the man. But you see, one of the things, one of the things that, that if you're in the public eye at any level, is is very difficult. And I've had conversations with people doing this job over forty odd years, and worked for big radio stations, including national stations, and people will say to me about such and such and such and such. And they make an assumption that you're the person that they think you are because you're the person that they hear or they see on a stage or on a football park. And I have to say to a lot of them, and I do say to a lot of them, listen, it's this is my stage. It's an act. I'm a character. It's what I do. That's it. 
after that and they say well what's so and so like and you say to them things like I don't know because he passes me as I come in the studio and he goes out the studio and you, I don't I've never been one for mixing with the media types or things like that it's just never been me um, but it is easier sometimes isn't it to live up to the the reputation that people make for you rather than your own reputation and what you're actually like yeah sometimes I actually think we're if it's just a casual night of drinking here and there, players can maybe help, you know, police that. I think if it becomes an actual addiction, it, you need that. You need proper professional help. I don't think, you know, players will try and help as much as they can. Managers will, but now you've got back on side who you can actually get professional help from. Uh, from, and I think that's important that players know that you know they are available and they're worth speaking to you. And it, again, it's yeah. highly confidential. It's you know, and it's not something that goes into a talking shop and, and things like that. It's a one-to-one -one situation which is hugely con uh, confidential. Uh, Graham, let me come back to you. Ever a time where you're tempted to drink again? Yeah. What do you do? Um, remember the past. Um, I, I pulled away for everything, Bill, so I, I'm a massive football fan, but I associated going to the football with drink. So I pulled away from it, um, and I'm now I'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Partick Thistle fan, and I'm now in a, in a club seventy. There's a line there, but I'm not going for it. I blame I blame that. I'll leave that I, one. I blame, I'll leave that one there. I blame that to why I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> um, but I, I would um, so particularly if I'm in a, in an area and people look as if they're enjoying their drink, um, particularly if I drive by a pub and somebody's outside. Um, you know, and and I've got a lovely pint, and they're sitting out in the beer garden. The way I work with it and deal with it is, I remember that going down to the pub, I would go down to the pub, and I would want to speak to the old guys and talk to them about the war, and we would get the banjos mm -hmm. out, and we would have a sing song, and I would fan make this fantasy up that what it was going to be like in the pub. And the reality was, I would generally sit on my own until I had get rid of the fear. Um, you know, five or six pints in, and then I would go and want to be the life and soul of the party. So I know now that my ability to have two pints and be a normal drinker is long gone. So I remember the bad times, unfortunately, um, and, and there's plenty of them to keep me away from it. I don't know if I'll drink again, Bill. That's the, that's the reality of it, is, is I don't know. Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I've never been an alcoholic, but I'll be honest with you, as I was last time you were on, I, I was a binge drinker. I mm. could go weeks and not drink, but if I went out and had a drink, I've seen me go and play out around a golf on a Monday and a Friday night, and I'd go in the club after we'd played about eight o'clock, half eight at night during the summer, and I'd come back out when the sun was coming up, and I just drank and drank and drank. And sadly, for anybody who drinks, um, if you don't get hangovers, then there's no downside to drinking. So you just keep doing it and you keep doing it. And I could go months without having a drink, but you see, when I had one, <laughs> bang, away I went. I mean, my record for one night was three bottles of red wine and a litre and a half of whiskey. Uh -huh. And that was my record for one night. Um, I, I, and I stopped 10 years ago. I don't drink at all. I don't miss it. I don't feel inclined to drink. But I stopped because uh, I've got three grandkids now who are all fairly young. And I was told that a serious heart problem, and it was either stop drinking or die, mm -hmm. and so I just stopped. Um, I know I'd be dead if I was if I was to have continued drinking. But I can I can see where you're coming from. Although I, it wasn't something I had to do mm -hmm. day in day out when I did it, then I just you know made an absolute beast of myself with it. 
Um, I so I, I can see where you're coming from with it. Saying earlier on there about you know we we're talking about the dressing room, you know a pub's very much. I mean I grew up in the pub life because I, I never knew anything else but to drink in a pub. Um, so I was never ever going to get the right answer about my drink problem because I was never out the pub. So if you ask somebody that's in a pub, they're doing exactly the same thing as you. You know, if you th- I think I've got a problem with my drink, I'll just have another pint. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's very much, as Dill said, this is going to sound a bit crazy, but it's very much like a football dressing room. You know, everybody's trying to be the big I am. Um, you know, I'm this and I'm that. Everybody's looking, you know, the ticket and wanting to be top dog as such in the pub. And um, But nobody will say, you've been in here for 25 days in a row. Some days you're in before 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Mm. You know, because that's the culture. Libby, let me ask you something, because this would be a concern for me about back on side, and it's positive, not negative, but it's negative at the minute. With all the work that you do, and it's grown and grown and grown and grown, how easy is it going to be for you to scale back on side in terms of people and in terms of, if you like, bringing different skill sets and expertise and expanding the offer, the proposition, if you will, uh, for players and for people uh, from that point of view. Because there's going to come a time where some point you're going to have to shut your eyes and go to sleep. <laughs> so that's my question. As much as it's it's great you're doing what you're doing, there's going to come a breaking point for you. Are you concerned, one, that it might affect your mental health again or mental welfare? Or if, is there a plan, is there a progression plan in place to develop back on site? Yeah, there's definitely a plan in place, um, but that's going to involve more funds coming in, mm-hmm. and that's where the sticking problem is because we're not government-funded or anything at all. We're purely fundraising and donations. And that's could you qualify for grants or anything like that on could. social programmes or anything? We possibly could. But the only problem is they want to know details, and I'm one thing I'm wanting to stick to and always build it back on side. Nobody. You mean personal details? Yeah, they want really, and, and and kind of what football clubs and and I don't ever want to disclose that. In fact, right? Okay, and I no, I can understand this, that. I need to be as clear tonight as well that everybody that contacts me, it stays within me and our whatever counsellor that we get referred to. Um, but doesn't that put that pressure back on you again and, and challenge your mental welfare? I sp- there is days that I do. I, I'm not going to So what that. do you do? You I, can't call back got, on side. Well, I do, actually. <laughs> uh, I've got these guys, actually. I can I can bounce things off of them and also our counsellors. I use our counsellor just now once a week and I'm not ashamed to admit that because just now we're dealing some with some really heartbreaking cases that probably is affecting me um, but I'm now very good at opening up and, and have the right people around me that I'm able to talk to them but yeah of course we would definitely want to grow it but it's 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 funds and it's the support we need behind the scenes um, as well that's going to make that grow but we are now up to three councillors pretty much full time mm-hmm. um, they're self-employed we just we pay them and this week I think we put uh, I think there's 18 new people that are into counselling, not all footballers, I mean general public as well. Um, so And that's growing every week. And that's on top of the ones we've already got going into are you su- Are you surprised at how quickly this has escalated? <laughs> very. In terms of people who refer themselves to you or are referred to you? Very, very. And actually, Isn't that in itself scary though? It's frightening. It's really frightening. In fact, a counsellor last night said to me that she can't believe the amount of people that she's seen from us that wouldn't be able to do this 
because financially they can't afford it. So we obviously covered all the costs. Mm -hmm. But she says that she can't believe the people that are coming that have said there's just no way I could have like afforded to come and see you. Um, which is which is frightening. That's really frightening. Dills, let me come back to you because there's a certain dichotomy here a wee bit with football in particular, and that is that you're dealing with people who intentionally strive to be in the public eye. That lays them open to severe criticism, severe adulation, so there are enormous highs and incredible lows. In, in a way, and Libby, you can chip in here, in a way that's a recipe for bad mental well-being. So with the modern footballer today, what kind of things do clubs do in terms of help and I don't mean the sports psychology side of things, but I mean kind of support and stuff like that. Are clubs more aware? Are they more proactive now? Because, again, and, and one of the things that comes up here, it comes up with players, it comes up with ex-players, it comes up with coaches, it comes up with managers, it comes up with ex-managers. And that is the source of all evil for a footballer and the biggest, if you like, contributor to his mental well-being not being right, social media. Yeah, that's exactly but I would say, yeah, I think social media is great at times for certain things. I think it's probably one of the worst for... So why do players people. do it? I, I think, is I think it, they, is it they need the high when the times yeah, are good? I think players would love to flick their phone on and see thousands of people writing positive things about them and, and we love you, we want this, we want that. Unfortunately, social media... You should have that Twitter account. account. Yeah. You get used to and, getting and I, think, I think it's more and more obvious that Social media is, you know, it puts an awful lot of players under an awful lot of pressure. And fans who come to games probably don't understand that what you write to someone on, on Twitter or whatever it is can have an effect on them, mm. even on a, a Saturday at games. You know, I understand that people have pressured jobs during the week and, and they come to the game on the Saturday and just vent, you know, and those 22 players in front of you are just, they're all getting it. Managers will get it, referees will get it because it's a way of getting things off their chest to make them feel better but you know players can pick up on these things they can sometimes hear specific things in the crowd but to then pick their phone up at home when they should be relaxing and away from but that that's a choice they've made which course. which of course invites this into their life Libby do you advise people about getting off social media yeah, if they're having problems one of the first things I say is, is come come right off it um, and, and don't have anything to do with it a lot of people, a lot of players now, I've noticed as well that get someone else to run their social media, but they're still they're still seeing it. They're still getting of access. They are. Or, I mean, this sounds glib, but social media to me is a bit like being an addict again, you know. Because and I'm as bad as anybody. Eighteen months ago, I knew nothing about social media, wasn't on it, and now I'm on it. God knows how many yeah. times a day, as you guys know. Um, I, I, and you've probably seen some of the pelters and the batterings I've got. But, you know, again, what I had did... I, at first, I took everything very, very personally. I really did. I, I, I used to go home and think about these things. I'd get into arguments with people on social media, and then I thought to myself, hang on a minute, it's not you they're having a go at. It's the person that's the character on social media. Yeah. And But it's hard to get your head around that. And and it's, it's not just players either, though. It's, general, it's everyday people. I came off social media for six months because well, my daughter told me to because it's affected me so badly because mm -hmm. I would see things and think they're talking about me like something I've done or and, and, it's and they weren't necessarily no, I don't know I don't really care now but at the time when I was struggling social media made it ten times worse and it was mm. the best thing I ever did was come off 
Okay, guys, I'm going to take a break and uh, we'll come back. We'll talk some more. Let me just remind you, 70 years of the World Mental Health Foundation. It's uh, World Mental Health Day. We're talking about uh, it's suicide prevention is the theme. And we're talking tonight about football and the way that mental welfare. There's been an explosion in discussion, but discussion, talk is cheap. We've got to see action. Actions are, are you know, what we need. But talk is the first part of it, admitting that you have problems or or maybe admitting that you might have a problem, because you may not know, is part of the whole thing. And, and we're trying to kind of work our way through the next uh, hour and a half talking about different things and how it affected different people in different ways and what they did. Back on side are uh, our uh, associates tonight in terms of bringing the programme to you. We'll tell you more about Back on Side a wee bit later on as well. In the meantime, let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk more on Talking Football. Imagine raw power, supreme skill. Hand-to-hand combat and national pride. Imagine putting your body on the line for the greatest prize in world rugby. The Rugby World Cup 2019. Rock Sport Radio will bring you comprehensive coverage of this titanic battle between the world's top teams. Who will reign supreme? Will it be Northern or Southern Hemisphere? Rock Sport Radio's Lewis Stewart will be in Japan to give you the latest team news and reports from all of Scotland's games. The Rugby World Cup on Rock Sport Radio, brought to you by Motorpoint Glasgow. Convert your rugby skills into two free tickets to the Six Nations in Rome. Visit Motorpoint Glasgow today and take part in their conversion challenge. Just two minutes from Junction 3 and the M74. Do you hear that? That's your family coming round to your new house for Sunday lunch. Your son opening the door of his first home. Visitors arriving at your guest house. Friends coming over to watch the football. Scottish Building Society offer a range of mortgages, so we can turn this into this. Scottish Building Society. We've been helping people open doors since 1848. Call us today on 0345 600 4085. Scottish Building Society is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. William, Pamela and Anthony were sold investments by banks and ended up losing money. Luckily, they contacted Goodwin Barrett and were able to claim back a total of £65,500. If you've lost money on an investment sold by a bank or financial advisor, even if you no longer have the investment or the paperwork, Goodwin Barrett could help. Discover how much you could be owed. Text GOOD to 6677. Text GOOD to 6677 now. It's easy to put things off. I'll sort it tomorrow. It'll wait. Well, turns out if you're a man with prostate disease, the sooner you spot it, the better it can often be treated. So if your dad or brother have had prostate cancer or you're having trouble with your waterworks, do something about it. See your GP or visit prostatescotland.org.uk for more information. Prostate Scotland. Pull your finger out. Love music. Live sport. Talking football. With Bill Young and Jerry McCabe on Rock Sport Radio. Substitute Jerry McCabe for Chris Doolin. Dools is in the studio with us tonight. We're talking mental health, uh, special that we've been planning for a, a wee while now, and uh, brought to you in association with our friends at Back On Side. Um, we've been talking in the, the first 
half an hour or so about you know how back on side came to to be and and then what it does and how it does it and why it does it i'm uh, gonna start looking at some specific situations now and uh my thanks before we talk to any of my future guests for them coming on and actually being as honest and as open about things uh, as i hope they're going to be and i hope that we can get them to be but before i do my next guest let me just tell you the scotland team uh, david marshall liam palmer andy robertson charlie mulgrew michael devlin john fleck robert snodgrass john mcginn ollie buck callum mcgregor and ryan fraser uh, do I want to discuss that later? Probably not. Uh, let's move on, get back to what we're talking about today. 70 years of the World Mental Health Foundation. Our next guest is Jordan Moore, Head of Academy Recruitment and Talent ID at Dundee United, one of Andy Goldie's little helpers. Yeah. Uh, uh, Andy Goldie Goblin. You're, you're like <laughs> we Andy Goldie Elf. You'll be, you'll be happy for that, to be fair. <laughs> Welcome to the show and thanks for coming on tonight. It's, it's, uh, it's obviously a difficult subject to talk about in general, but you have specifics uh, that we can talk about which you had to overcome, uh, and that is fighting off cancer three times. Yep. Now, the physical side of that in itself must be fairly torturous but the mental side of it uh how did it impact on you uh, and how did you what did you do to come through it yeah it was obviously a really tough time for myself and my family i was i was only 19 i was only at uh, dunferman at the time and it was obviously a, a massive shock but it was something that we maybe should have seen uh, seen a bit sooner because the mall was getting bigger and bigger all the time but the first time wasn't too bad, just remove the mole, it was sort of stage one. But the second time, it came back maybe two weeks later, uh, very aggressively. Uh, it was a big sort of lump in behind my ear and I had to get 90 lymph nodes removed from my, my shoulder, my neck, which was a massive sort of 13-hour surgery, which massively impacted my shoulder, my neck, I couldn't move it and stuff. So I had to sort of, I probably should have retired at that point, but I decided I had to get back to, to try and play football which was something I love, but at the same time it was damaging my body. And it's probably the fact that I was scared what else was I going to do after after football. I had a, a couple of years to try to get back. I went on loan, uh, on loan to Queen's Park, done okay there, and then went to, to Limerick and Ireland, never played at all. Then went over t- to Thailand to play, but that was probably just to prolong the inevitable that I was going to have to retire sooner or later. Why, why were you so reluctant to let go as... For football playing yeah. as a future, when there must have been other avenues open, obviously. It's, at the time, you don't really think. I didn't think that. I was, I was sort of left school when I was sixteen, no qualifications. You're like, what else can I do? I actually went to a factory for a day to see if I could come work, and then I was working in a freezer factory for maybe two hours. And I was like, my, my shoulder just froze. It was, it was the worst thing. I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing. I'm getting back into football. It's what I love to do. And, Thankfully, I've, I've, I've managed to get this job at 25. In, in, a, in a way, Jordan, your single-mindedness to stay in football, did that help you through all of that in terms of deflecting your attention away from your other problems? Yeah, definitely. I think, as most footballers, that's all you're sort of thinking about is, is football and stuff, but it's obviously the different side of it. People only see you training and stuff, but I was lucky enough I had a, a good flat where three of the boys have went on and had great careers at Andy Robertson, obviously. Uh, Liverpool, John Suter, my best mates doing well at Hearts and Anastas and Ryan Gold, they went to Sport in Lisbon, so mm-hmm. I had that support network of them three and a lot of the other boys, we all lived together up in Dundee so you come back and you're probably distracted a wee bit everything that's happening because all your best pals are all up in Dundee, so 
I think that was a sort of big thing that helped me having the distraction of so many good people at the club and a lot of good teammates. Let me ask you another thing, uh, and, and this is quite important in terms of we discuss it anyway, and, and this is a, a kind of dual-sided thing for you because obviously you're, you're head of academy recruitment and you're you know head of talent ID. One of the things that we talk about is how young, and, and Andy came on and was brilliant and told us all about how it all works at Dundee United, and it seems like pretty much the perfect model yeah. if he's not been fibbing to me, and I've no, got no, he's not, he's, no reason yeah. to believe he has. No, but, le- but let me ask you this, and, and because you're in a, you were in a similar position, mm-hmm. but not through a lack of talent, yeah. through a medical condition. Yeah. We talk about young kids that go into the game and they're brought into clubs at a very young age, and sometimes by the time they're 14, possibly 15, 15, sometimes 13. They could have been brought in with two or three guys they went to school with and one of them has cut loose and told, there's nothing we can do with you, you're not going to make it, you're too small, one eye's bigger than the other, whatever it is. Um, And they go. And I've asked this question, are we now creating, if you like, production line mental illness for these kids because it's bad enough being cut, but you see if you're cut with people that you've played with at school or in a club or with a boys' brigade or whatever, and they're kept on and you go, it must be absolutely devastating. Yeah, I agree, 100%. But I think that's a good thing that Andy Goldie's brought into the club is he puts sort of setbacks during like, the players' development. Even if they're doing brilliant, he'll, he'll maybe drop them for a game or he'll do something if they've been playing up, he'll take them back to their own age. But inevitably, yeah. we'll still have to cut people. Yeah, of course. How How is that done? And, and you, of all people, yeah. would know how painful it is to face the fact that you're not going to be a footballer anymore. Yeah, it's, it's very, very hard, but it's, I think that's the nature of football. It's so competitive to get to the, the very top that there's, there's people that do have to get released and stuff, but it's, it's sort of finding... The player a different opportunity he could go to a different club and do well, which we've seen a lot of, a lot of players do. Maybe their face doesn't fit a certain club and they, they go away and they go and find something else if it's not football. But I agree, it's it's also a very tough sort of industry. Football. Is it is it a better is it a, a do you feel you're better inclined and able to be able to deal with those situations having been through what you've been through yeah, and I, knowing what it's yeah. like to be on that end of things? Yeah, definitely. I think. Uh, come through the academy myself at sort of very young age and then you're going through the exact same path that everybody's doing but obviously mine had to, to stop a wee bit differently but I think my advice would be to sort of just train as hard as you can because it could, it could end tomorrow, you could get a bad injury, you could obviously get ill but it is so important to have a backup plan as well because very, very few kids actually make it come through the academy as well so it is so hard to, my advice to, to sort of kids come through but sticking at school as well and you need to sort of, it's hard to have a plan B when you're just so focused on becoming yeah. a player, but yeah. I think you, you actually you have to now because if not, you could leave school with no qualifications, get released when you're 17, 18, and then it's, where do you take it from there? It's, it's, it's a really tough industry now, yeah, definitely. Dules, let me bring you back in a minute, mate, if I may, because Jordan's highlighted something which I think is great, and it's, it's crucial, but it does cause other questions. He was saying about the support he got from... Uh, Ryan Gold from Andy Robertson from who else was it again? I uh, John Suter, um, and I'm thinking, you know, that's great. These are players that know the dressing room, they know the individual, and they're giving them support. Yet players are still reluctant when they've got any problems to go to other players 
because they don't think they're going to get that support. Yeah. And now, that shows that the support is there. It may not be there everywhere with every player, but it does show that, that players will support other players. Yeah, and I was, I was going to say that I think it, it probably typifies modern football as opposed to you know, generations gone, gone by. I'm sure Suter and Gold are, are all more aware now mm-hmm. just of the problems within football. They've probably been through some themselves, had setbacks, you know, been told they're not good enough at different... And football's a game of opinions. Just because one person says you're too small, I had it as well. Said I was too small to be a striker. I left. I went elsewhere. I came a different route in football. But you know, you you have to learn how to deal with these kind of things. And obviously, as Jordan said, it's a tough, tough way to learn. But I think having guys like Suter and um, Gold around who who have that knowledge now to spot problems and not just to spot, but to actually just be a good teammate. And I think it's. It comes back to the manager who's looking after the club. They build good dressing rooms. And I think you always hear managers now talking about they want the right player, but they want the right character. And it's and it's for reasons like this, you know, and it's not to do with they come in and the you know, that they're fighting with players and stuff. That's that's a football dressing room, there'll be disruption. But I think they're looking for characters who now they can bring in and will gel and become lifelong friends, you know, not just be acquaintances who, who play football yeah, for a year yeah. or two and disappear. Let, let me bring you both in in a minute, but I'll start with you, duels, if I may, and that is, let's spin this a little bit. Let's just say there's a manager whose mental welfare isn't good. What happens then? Yeah, and and then I think it's it's got to be where, you know, lights are back on side. Well, keep coming back to back on side. They're becoming more, more and more easier to get to. But the manager may be the guy that you go to with yep. your problem. Where's he going to go? Is he going to admit he's got a problem in terms of he's supposed to be the leader? He, if you guys are all supposed to be macho men as footballers, he's supposed to be a guy in a blue suit with S on his chest and a, a red cape. Yep, and this is where I think it's just that you're saying there's not a book, that there's not a list of what to do. It's about learning. It's about you know le- learning who you can turn to, why you would turn to, how to spot it. But ultimately, you've got to understand and and be open to understanding that that there's help there. Um, and even if, regardless of whether you're the manager, a player, uh, the guy who you know sets up the strips, there's help there for everyone. Um, anonymous help, but the help all the same. And I think it doesn't matter who you are. I think it gets to the point where, you know, you have to put your ego to the side, whether you're the manager, for your own well-being. You have to understand that, you know, help's there, and making that step forward is the best thing to do. Mm. Jordan, when when you 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 kind of look at kids now, because we, we're hearing horror stories of kids having mental problems at a younger age now. It seems to me that. You know, a bit like cancer, sadly, which you've experienced, mental welfare and, and the imbalance of it is non-discriminatory as well. It doesn't care who it picks. And kids are getting, getting you know, bad problems, mental welfare problems now at a younger age. Do you take it upon yourselves at the academy to try and spot even those things at those young ages? Yeah, 100%. I think even when I was coming through, maybe even 10 years ago, I don't think it was as big, but now it's, we've got 11 sort of full-time academy staff who are all sort of told by Andy's brought that in, to be fair, that you need to be looking out for it because 
it's so important to the player's development as well, and it's obviously the person first before the, the footballer as well. And there's there could be problems at home or at school and stuff like that. So it's it's so important, so vital that you put the person first to to make sure that everything's okay. But I think you can spot it if they're sort of if normally they're sort of happy sort of kid, and then you maybe spot a few sessions a wee bit quiet and they want to get away quicker or they're maybe not turning up and stuff like that. Then there's definitely signs, but. I think obviously people back on side here for sort of older, over sort of sixteen. Would it be? Was it got? Any? We've been in. We've been in um, at in fact the whole raft of secondary schools mm-hmm. we've been in mm-hmm. it, um, from first year through to sixth. I think. And, and I guess because that's you recognise Graham that that the, the problem is affecting people at a younger age. And, and and again, a lot of people will bring this back to social media, uh, where there's online bullying and things like that. So I'm just, you know, I'm curious as to know how we, we kind of, if you like, meld this so that we don't end up, and it is very important, guys, that we don't use a one-size-fits-all solution to any of this, because everybody's an individual suffering in a different way for a different reason. I remember somebody Bill saying to me um, when I was approached, uh, it was actually a family member had said to me, Graham, son, you haven't reached rock bottom yet. That's a very dangerous thing to say to somebody. He was meaning well, but my head twisted that round and said, well, if I've not reached rock bottom, then I'm all right. I've still got a bit to go. So everybody's got a different rock bottom. And and I had wished that I'd started drinking by the time I was in first year because of my mental health at school. Um, and, my, and my schooling went south because of it and I left school with pretty much nothing I had to work mm. hard in the last wee while to get myself back to where I need to be at but at that time when I was in first year I'd, I'd started drinking because I didn't like myself and I was thinking horrible thoughts if somebody had stood in a stage like I've been standing on stage and Jordan and Chris have been standing on stage given their experience and I think I'm, I don't know, very difficult to say but I think I might have taken a different path because of that realisation that what I was thinking wasn't actually abnormal. You know, it was an issue, a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and certainly I would have been in touch with somebody from a back on side or I would approach one of my teachers because in the day, approaching a teacher nowadays is slightly different from my day. Uh, teachers were to be f- feared, you know, which wrong, that's wrong. But pe- teachers were to feared. You certainly wouldn't go to a teacher and say... I'm feeling a bit down and I don't know why I don't want to be here anymore, I'm feeling ill. Um, whereas nowadays schools are starting to bring in pupils that are mental health champions. Now, that is fantastic, there's not enough of them doing it. Um, you know, we were at a, a, a school last week that, uh, you know, they've got mental health champions in there, you know, f- you know, from third year through to sixth year. Uh, uh, that's fantastic and they're all having mental health training, mental health first aid training. You know, and and it's it, it's it's brilliant. And I've through my journey, and we're back on side. I, I'm I know I don't look it, but I'm playing over thirty five football now. And uh, what do you mean you know you don't look it? I'm not going to the four goals on Friday, <laughs> but um, but, but uh, the guys in there know exactly now. Uh, I'm new to the team, and I had that fear going into the dressing room. That it was like going back to the old days. That fear is these guys are going to judge me. And I never, t- I wouldn't tell anybody that I was an alcoholic. Now, the guys that know me know I'm quite open uh, about being an alcoholic and, and having issues, but I didn't want to tell anybody in that changing room. Mm-hmm. And it took somebody to come to me 
before I would open up. So I had reverted back to old Graham. Yeah. You know, which is the worst possible thing you oh, can it's horrible. do. Horrible. Jordan, let me ask you this, uh, and and forgive me if this hits a nerve. It's not meant to, but I'm going to ask the question because I think I need to. Uh, and that is, obviously, having been through what you've been through and fought off cancer three times now. Um, in terms of your own mental well-being, is there a little cupboard at the back of your head where all of a sudden you get a knock on the door saying, "Is everything okay?" Am I okay still? Is you know, am I going to get this again? You know what? You know what I'm trying yeah, to say. No, Obviously, okay. there's 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 a reason for you not to let go of something, yeah. and I just wonder how hard that is to live with constantly, or if you even do live with it constantly. I think subconsciously you do, even though I, I won't think about it every second of the day. But there is definitely certain if you look at certain music or certain songs, certain smells or certain rooms or. Even I was maybe going to go back to Dunfermline at one point, but I was in a room where I kind of got told that it was come back and I was going to go back for a second time alone and I couldn't go in the room. It was just like brought back so many sort of strange memories, which mm. again maybe affected my career as well. I, like I rejected the chance to go back to a club that I, I really enjoyed and maybe that was the wrong decision, but it was because I, I couldn't go into a certain room that I'd been sort of told and I'd been sort of broken Do you feel the same level of fear now as you yeah. did then? Probably, you probably get more as you get older. Because really? You don't, you know how hard it was on your family and stuff like that. I was the worst, but not for myself, but for people close to me because you don't want them to go through. You've seen my family break down, being told that your son, 1920, he's got malignant melanoma, he's came back. What treatment do I do? What, two years in a, a room, dark, with just doctors coming in because it was a sort of vampire drug they wanted me to take, stuff like that. You're like, I don't, I don't want to do it. How, how do you control it now then? What Just do you do? Regular sort of checkups. You need to check your. No, I mean, how do you control it in your head? Oh, my head. Dealing with yeah. it. Yeah. I think dealing with it is to try and help other people. That's how I sort of go through it, knowing that I've helped maybe one or two people who are sort of going through it now or have done in the past, even if you just do it sort of quietly and stuff. People always know that I'm, I'm here to talk about uh, talk the sort of. The symptoms as well, all that sort of stuff. So, I think that's how I got through it. it. Was unbelievable friends, unbelievable family who supported me, and even if they know that some days, like maybe an anniversary or something, maybe like five years ago or four years ago, and just maybe they know it give you a bit of space, a bit of time that you don't want to speak about it all the time. Sometimes if you're quiet, you just want to. So, if you go to your bed early one night or something like that, then it's maybe because you've maybe had a few thoughts about. It come back, or you've you've noticed something change a wee bit, and you're like, oh, you're going to get that checked tomorrow or something like that. So it, it does play in your mind, but maybe not as much as other people. But I think people who, I've never spoken about this before, but I think people who suffer with cancer, once they, they fight it, I think the fighting it's not the worst, but it's the aftermath of it, it's, it's even worse because you've got something to, to wake up and fight for every day, knowing that I'm going to beat this, I'm going to do this. But once you've done it, you're like, Phew. That's an interesting thing. It's something I've always sort of thought about without actually ever speaking about it. Is the aftermath is a bit more, a bit harder, I think. Do you feel more vulnerable mentally now than you did then? Oh, is it? I feel like a different, a different boy then. You just go into a sort of zone where you're just like, anything, just a shield that everyone just sort of, bat, you just bat it off as if, no, I'm too strong for this. This is, this is me, I'm a fit boy. It shouldn't happen to somebody my age and who's, who lives a life well, didn't drink, didn't smoke trained every day and then now you're like it could come back but at the same time 
it'd be the worst thing because you don't want your family to go through that but you're ready if it, if it does to, to go through but it's just that initial when when you've beat it it's a kind of people sometimes like something to fight I don't, it's, it's hard to explain but mm. I think no, I, th- I think you've explained it extremely yeah, yeah. well, and and then yeah. it's kind of interesting that you say yeah. now that it's more of a pressure on your mental well-being yeah. uh, after it yeah. than it was during it, and I can I can relate to that and and see that how it would be having had it explained to me the way that you've explained yeah. it, and I think I think that's, uh, but it's quite strange to think about because you'd have thought to yourself, yeah. God, you're worrying about, am I going to get through this? Yeah. How am I going to get through it? What's going to happen if I'm not here? Kind of thing. Definitely, I think uh, as well. I've got obviously a lot of scars on my face and stuff like that, so you you, you get reminded of it constantly when you're in the shower. You look in the mirror, you've scars all over your body and stuff. But I think that might affect people who are a bit more conscious of the way they look and stuff. I'm I'm quite lucky that. That that's one thing that's never really bothered me. The the sort of surgeon's always asking, or oh, maybe made a bad job and I tidied it up and stuff. Like that. But that's something that people see the scars. That's the thing. The biggest thing with cancer and sort of mental health is people see that all the different scars and go, "Wow, you're a warrior. You went through all that." But you're like, there's a people fighting sort of mental health battles. Yeah, and you and you don't see the scars. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's, it's it's just the way it is. But I think people like Graham and and live it back on side doing major things especially in sort of Scottish football to to show that mental health is, is massive and stuff and it's, it's okay not to be okay and I think there should be sort of big credit to them that even if you've not got scars to show for it it's still scars inside that nobody can see yeah. it's, it's, it's so important but yeah. Jordan, I know you've got to leave us now. Uh, yeah, so I'll Andy let you. Goldie will be I'll let you. <laughs> well, Andy Goldie's coming to pick you up. I'm going to give Andy, don't worry. Oh, yeah. He's in Corfu and I'm enjoying myself, but I'll be out in the well, right, Andy. There you go. He's in Corfu. <laughs> Get out there and watch games. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you very much for, for coming in. I'll let you go now. Just uh, and we'll, I want to talk to you, Duels, about something. Uh, because I've not had a, a, an opportunity to talk to you about this, but I'm going to now. Uh, darkest moment in your life, and how did you cope with it, and what triggered it, if it's not too personal? No, I mean, I'm I'm probably very, very lucky in terms of I don't, I've never really struggled with mental health problems. And knowingly. That's, no, knowingly, that's that's one thing I would maybe say, is everybody probably goes through some, having worked with, with Graham and Libby, I'm starting to realise more and more that you know, even small things. Yeah. As you're growing up, as you're a, as you're a child, and we went to a school recently, and I was looking around about. I think I think Graham was actually talking. Somebody was speaking. As a wee girl at the front crying, and I thought, you know, she she was 15 years old, 16 years old, and I thought it's clearly hitting home with whatever it was she had going on. But they're all at an age at that time where they're all going through massive changes, and and social media has a big impact, and I probably had those kind of issues as well and I spoke about that on the day that you know we've all been that age I've been the 16, 17 we've all had rejection we've all had so going back to football when I was told that Kilmarnock I was too small to be a striker but and I remember being told I remember the initial you know what am I going to do now you know I expected to to become a professional footballer in the SPL at that time and you know myself and Stephen A. Smith were the strikers it was great and then all of a sudden it was just oh you're not coming back but I think at that time I was lucky that you know my family are tremendous around about me and my parents really guarded me from most of it. And I just had it in my head I was going to go another route and I actually became more determined probably to make it but going another route and I, and I was forced to go down that route. Just just like you know Jordan was saying, he didn't choose 
to have cancer, you know, it, and his, his, his story is unbelievable. I've heard Jordan speak about it before. It's incredible. He's, he's, he's unbelievable how he deals with it, and he's actually, you tip your hat to him because... It's kind of interesting. It, it did shock me when he said it's harder to live with mentally now than it was when he was fighting cancer. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, one of the things he spoke about, again, that for me, hurt, and I, I put my hands up, I've never knownly really to that level, you know, Graham's level of severity, I've never been at that stage, so I wouldn't ever stand and, and preach. But I'm on the other side of it, and I'm thinking, how can I how can I help? Simply by being a footballer, and these well, young, sure, young surely, kids... Surely, there's, 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 there's cause and effect, if you like, and the way that I would look at it, and I may be wrong, and I'm sure you might have a view on this, Graham, but the way that I would look on it is that for every negative case that you can highlight... Every positive case reinforces where you could be mm-hmm. rather than where you actually are or where you might go. Yep. And I think what you do is you draw the parallels. You know, it's kind of like a double act. You draw the parallels between this is what happened to me, this is what happened to me, and you look at the negative and the positive because I think it's important that, that we talk about this. Then you can explain it better, but... If we talk about it, it's easier to understand, and that's the crucial bit. It's the understanding of it. Because, as I said earlier on, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution because there's not a one-size-fits-all problem. Yeah, and that's where I'm learning about it as well. But And I I say this to to Graham all whatever I can help, however I can help, I'm there to help. And if that just means turning up to, to speak openly about things, take questions, whatever that may be, if it takes for a footballer to stand there, who kids idolise footballers, and for a footballer to say, come and speak to, you know, back on side, come and speak to Graham, mm. come and speak to Libby, if that's enough to make one person from a school, yeah. that wee girl who was crying in front of me, if she goes home and anonymously contacts back on side, that, that's technically my part in it, um, because I, I don't have the stories that, that Graham speaks of. And it comes from different angles, but I still think that everybody's got a role to play. Here's something that I'm going to tell you guys, which I'm, I, I don't think will shock you. But obviously, I, you know, just before the show, I was quite active on Twitter about various things. And everybody was most supportive. But there were two or three people who put in the glib jibe, the glib remark, the, you know, making fun of it kind of thing or, or that kind of thing. And my view would be that they might be people that should ask themselves if they've got a mental problem, if they've got health problems. And I don't mean for doing that, but it's the kind of, like the alcoholic, trying to gloss over it, yeah. trying to make light of it, trying to pretend that there's nothing there. I've got two things there, Bill, with that one. So I'm ashamed to say that I was one of the people that I was suffering really bad with my mental health and somebody had came to me and I just told them to give themselves a shake. No. Uh, that's still prevalent. That's still quite a lot happens yeah. from a guy. Give yourself a bloody shake. Give yourself a shake and don't cry. Um, and the second part of that is with, with, with the Twitter. And I write a blog. Um, so I, I, I write a blog. And the comments that come through to the blog are quite... Some of them are amazing. Some of them have brought me to tears because it's people thanking me. And it's generally family members, believe it or not. Um, but I've also had people who tell me to go and get a pint. You know, uh, See, the, the, the reason I mention this, and I say it 
from experience, which I won't talk about on air, but for 15 years I was involved with an organisation that kind of dealt with various things. Uh, and the reason I say this is because I find out very quickly, when you sit down and have a conversation about somebody, especially somebody who has a grievance, and they say it's not about this, you know it is about that, because that's what they start talking about non-stop. If it's not about that, why are we talking about that? Mm -hmm. It's a defence me mechanism is to say, don't judge me for talking about this. And it's, it, it struck me with these glib comments that we got today from various people. It struck me, these are people who are probably suffering unknowingly yeah. and need to seek some kind of help. Yeah, they're, they're, um, they're ashamed, probably ashamed of the way, but they're, they're keyboard warriors. Or, so, or, or they and, see and, themselves. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, I, for one, as I said before, I would pick out people and and compare myself to them. So, you know, and and it, it would be even when I the social media, I was a, never really a social media player. I am now because it, I have something. It's a huge benefit, but it's also but you're, but you're using it as a positive. Yeah, but it'll I, bring negatives with it. But you're using it as yeah, a positive. You just don't know what the other person's at at the other end of the phone. They could have a bottle of wine with them, you know, and. Sometimes you've got to look at these things and say, right, put yourself in there. Why are they criticising me? Mm -hmm. You know, I was a, I was very much a judger of other people, and I, and I would compare myself to other people. So it's a concern when you see some of the comments, but uh, unfortunately, you've got to be at rock bottom to ask for help. And if sometimes you've got to attack somebody else to make yourself try and feel better, yeah, then they're coming to the end of the, the, their journey. For my thing, I knew when I started, I criticised my family a lot. As soon as my family started questioning anything, I would go on the attack. Um, Best form of defence, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not drinking too much when I've got something hidden on me. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, when I was getting questioned where the money had gone. Did you ever use the toilet cistern as a hiding oh, place? That, that, was, that was great. That was my, my uh, mother-in-law's favourite. Uh, toilet one. cistern. She used to pour out clean Domestus bottles and uh, then put sherry or gin in them. I'd played golf. I'm, I was a, and I would tee off at half past six in the morning with a bottle of Volvic and I would pour rosy wine into it because I thought it looked like black, black water. Cotton. <laughs> and then the funny ironic thing was I'd be marching up the 18th saying, by God, I can't. I was saying to the guys I was playing with, can't wait to have a pint. I'm looking forward to a pint. Mm. It's half ten in the morning. I, know. I didn't mm. say anything wrong with it, but yeah, I, I find that uh, you know if people are attacking uh, individuals for, for speaking their mind, then you maybe need to look at uh, what's going on with yourself. I certainly, I was an attacker, as you know, so I know yeah. from experience that that's why you're frightened, scared. Yeah. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk some more. Don't forget, it's the seventieth anniversary of the uh, World Mental Health Foundation. Today is World Mental Health Day. We're talking about mental health and mental well-being in football. Uh, our next guest is going to talk about it in a slightly different way. Uh, and I'm sure it'll be just as enlightening. That's coming up right after this. Love music. Live sport. Talking football with Bill Young and Jerry McCabe on Rock Sport Radio. Okay, talking football for this... Um what night is it? It's Thursday, isn't it? I'm all caught with the nights here, to be honest with you. Um, 
Going to talk now to my, my final guest, uh, Junior Mendes, sports scientist and St Mirren and former professional player. Thank you for coming in. Can I just pull you in a wee bit closer to that mic, if I may, Junior? That's yeah. great. Uh, you're on the kind of other side of things now, but, yeah. you know, obviously as a player, um, you started at Chelsea. You'll know what the stresses are like at a big club like that. Yeah. Uh, your own thoughts with regards to the way things were then and the way they are now? Yeah, um, they're a lot different now. Um, there's a lot of um, um, things in place now um, for, um, for, for well-being, um, welfare. Um, when, when we was um, coming through the youth team, there wasn't anything. Um, there wasn't anything in place. And um, though recently, um, the, the whole kind of racism kind of scandal that was going on. And like basically, I was right in the middle of that. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because that then was fairly prevalent and it was brutal. Yep. It was ferocious. Yep. And being a black player in those days, I mean, there are lots of black players now. Yep. Uh, and so it's nothing that's that's unusual but being yeah. a black player back in those days mm-hmm. and beyond the, beyond that yeah. uh, was something that, that just kind of was like a magnet for ridicule and, and abuse wasn't it it was that must have in itself given that again like we were talking with with jordan a little bit of a double whammy because you're suffering racism and that then impacts on your own mental health it does and um what happened at the time actually one of my really good friends um, in the youth team um, he actually had a mental breakdown because of it and we didn't we didn't realise at the time um, I haven't spoken about this before actually um, and um, so it impacted on me but at the time we didn't realise why it was happening How did it impact on you before you, you go further with that? Well it was basically my best friend at the time Right And um, Did you feel guilt that you couldn't help or that I, you didn't see anything? Yeah I you... do now Yeah do I do now really? Yeah and, I, and I'm in contact with him now Right um, and um, didn't realise at the time that was the reason why. Um, so as a youngster, you know, you're 16, 17, and, you know, your friend starts to, you know, you know, he starts to act a little bit differently, and um, you kind of see the, sunny, the kind of funny side in it at the time. Um, as I say, we didn't realise um, there wasn't any education back then um, on that. And then, um, and another sad thing about, about the situation as well, he was, he was an amazing football player. He was an amazing football player, so Chelsea actually missed out on a really, really good, talented player. Um, and um, and then you know he, he started acting differently, um, and then he didn't make it. Um, he didn't make it to the end of the season, basically. And that was when everybody was going to be told they're going to get their pro contracts and stuff like that. Obviously, he didn't get his pro contract um, because of it. Um, and as I say now, you kind of look back, and it's, you know it's just it's just really sad. Did situation. you come close yourself at times through the racism thing, and how it affected you mentally, and 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 did you do you ever feel now looking back that you suffered from depression or any kind of fall in mental welfare? Um, not so, not not really, not really. But at the time, it's a little bit like um kind of Stockholm syndrome kind of thing, you know. And um, you know, you don't realise it's happening. Yeah. Um, it is happening, and it's kind of you think it's kind of like the norm. Um, and um, and then you know, it's only you know a couple of years down the line, you actually maybe think actually, you know, what well, that wasn't right. Um, or that wasn't right, and and then you know you hear more and more and more, and and then it's like you know actually that was really really wrong, um, and um, yeah, so so that was that, that was. Really Is there any so. time in your career that you can look at now and say that was a tipping point? That's where things turned and started to get better. Um, well, it's funny because I, I came up here straight away from Chelsea. Um, so in '96 I came up here, um, and um, it was a bit like a safe haven up here. 
um, you know, they talk about those, there was those problems up here, and I never. Yeah, but you see, see all. I was actually talking to someone today, mm-hmm. and we were discussing this about when I look at people who are either immigrants mm-hmm. or who are of colour. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, and I've said this on air, that, that sometimes I consider we're a narrow-minded, bigoted little country. Mm-hmm. I really do. And, and I've said it time and time again on air. But then when I sit back and I hear what other people say, and it's interesting what you've just said, mm-hmm. actually, I think our perception of ourselves is probably less near the mark than the actuality. Definitely. Um, you know, I, I came up here and everybody was just absolutely brand new. I absolutely loved it up here and I still do. Um, but obviously I think now, you know, with, the, with, with what's going on with Brexit and, you know, I think there's some issues going on. But, um, you know, on the whole, as I say, you know, it was, it's been really good. I've been, you know, welcomed. And, and at the time I came up, I was black and I was English. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> it was a treble whammy for you, treble, really. Yeah. Um, but no, it was absolutely, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> But um, but but as I said, you know, at the time when I was young, my you know my good friend, the the, the whole mental health and well-being side of it, it, you know, it wasn't a thing back then. And um, you're very much on the other side of things now in terms of sports science and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and you probably you know try and foster a more open environment in the professional game now than ever before, as we've been talking about. Do you still feel that players are resistant to? open up to talk about things to be seen as a, a an object of ridicule potentially by the, the, the teammates most definitely most definitely it's not spoken about it's not spoken about why because we all talk about it now it's more enlightened we do shows like this uh high profile players like chris and various other people chris boyd's got involved with it now because of his brother and the found his foundation various other people have got involved mm-hmm. you know we've seen players sadly take their own lives why are they are they still so reticent do you think junior i still think that they believe that they need to have an, an inner strength to play football at a higher level and um, it's it's not that it's not that I, th- I just think you have to have self-confidence to play at a higher level but this this inner strength that I think people think they need to have um, and then not open up and if things aren't going so well they don't want to say you can say there's no problem and you know my I, I would love it for, for, for any player to come to me and, and say you know you know what you know I'm a little bit down at the minute or um, you know I'm a little bit low on confidence and it's you can be low on confidence. There's, there's no, you know, a lot of the time you can see when a player's low on confidence. So if somebody just comes 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 up to you and says, you know, look, you know, I'm a little bit low on confidence. Let's have a chat. Brilliant. But players don't do that. Pills. Yeah, I can understand what Junior's saying. Um, and obviously, Jun- Junior works quite closely with players. You know, on a day-to-day basis, we were both at Thistle at the same time. Junior becomes one of the one of the team, and I think I think that's a great way to be because. Players will open up to junior if they feel that they can, or they should feel as if they can. But I don't know if you get that at every club. You know, I I don't know how it is at other clubs. I know how junior works personally, and I think that's why he's so well liked at the clubs he goes to because he's a very likable person. And players will, as time progresses, feel more comfortable to to open up to him. It might not be happening just yet, but as junior said, if one person comes to to Junior to, to speak about it, he'd be delighted to help them. And I think it's more about educating players, edu- educating 
staff, coaching staff as mm-hmm. well, that, you know, your demeanour as a, as a coach it will have an impact on players. You know, if you're an arrogant type person, players will just shut up shop to you because that that's a, that's a barrier. Whereas, you know, guys like Junior, who are in about players, have a likeable factor about them. Players will become a lot more easier to, 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 to go to him than to, to go to a manager. And that's that kind of in-between. You know, it's not Junior's job as a full-time you know, psychologist, but he, he is there to to vent to or to go and speak to. And as I said, if, if one person, if he could help one person, he'd be only too happy to help. But I think now it's about educating more than anything. Junior, let me ask you this. You're related about your best friend. Yeah. Did that consciously or subconsciously change the path that you were going to take when you finished playing rather than going into coaching, mm-hmm. going into sports science, do you think? Um, possibly. Um, I think I think it was very um, um, evident when, because there was a couple of times in my career when um, um, I had left the club. I left I left actually Dunfermline in September, actually, um, and I went to go to a club and the deal fell through and I was out of contract for nearly a full season. And um, and at times, you know, you know, it was getting. I think I was kind of tooting on the edge a little bit of depression, and um, you know, I went on a few trials here and there, and it didn't work out. And um, and then, you know, it was very much in my mind about my friend, what happened to my friend, mm-hmm. um, and um, and then actually at the time as well, my my mum was going through it as well. So you know, all, it, was, it was on my mind, and and it's kind of like kind of trying to keep the walls from the door, so to speak. So. Um, as I started coming to the, towards the end of my career, um, I was like, right, you know, I need to do something. And um, so I was looking at different avenues. Um, but the, 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 the best thing that, I, that ever, you know, ever happened to me was kind of stumbled across a course to do P, personal training. And um, so straight from there, I thought, you know what, I'd like to actually go back into football and be a fitness coach. So from there, so straight away, I enrolled into university to do a sports science degree. And it just kind of just rolled on from there. And because it was taking um, my mind off of everything else to studying, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Dills, when, when you look at junior now and you look at, you know, your own career, uh, is is there any kind of parallels that you can draw that you can look at? I mean, for example, you've been at one club for quite a long time. One of the things that I guess can be a big bear on the mental health of any player is if they're back and forward to a number of different clubs rather than being settled like you yeah. were. And I think one of the big things for footballers is being out of contract. You know, you, you're not getting paid. And I think for a lot of players... In Scotland, you know, money isn't, if you're not at the, at the old firm, money isn't just growing in trees. Yeah. So all of a sudden, at the end of the season, you stop being paid, you're out of the club. Now what do you do? And, and you, players can go two, three months now with when, when no wages. Um, so they've got to now prepare for that six months ahead so that when that day comes at the end of the season, they're financially prepared to, to go three months without being paid. But not all players, one, can do it, or two, are, you know educated enough to do it they'll just rock for one club thinking they'll rock into another club and all of a sudden during that summer it can be a long old summer and a lonely place when you know you're not being paid you've got bills to pay you've got and that can have a big impact on on players what do you do and how do you prepare for the time when you're no longer going into a dressing room to pull on a jersey yes um it's a bit of a sad, sad time um and that's why i wanted to get back into 
into football as well to just be be around that environment um so you know I was, I was so I was dabbling I was thinking about being a coach but then um as I say you know I found a love in in sports and exercise science and fitness and um and what I think with a, with a lot of players they're paid to to stay fit and um you know, if they went down a similar type route, I know they'd get a lot of enjoyment out of that as well. Um, I moved around a lot of clubs, so you know, I'm, I was the opposite to to Dulles. And yet you di- and yet you didn't fall into this black hole of depression or no, but or anything I, like that. No, but I was very close. I was very close, and it might have actually happened. It might have, but you know, at the time you don't really realise. And um, I was a bit of a recluse at times, and um, um, so. When I got back into playing, and then when I, as I said, when I found this course, it gave me a new focus, a new direction, and um, as I say, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Are the powers that be doing enough in terms of mental health awareness now? Every so often, we get a little flurry from the SPFL or the SFA when things like this are discussed and days like this happen. Uh, but are they doing enough generally, guys? I'm sure that they're trying as much as they possibly can. Um, as you say, on these kind of landmark days is usually when you get the flurry of, you know, who, who's available. I think if we could do more in between these days, because there's, there's 365 days of the year, just, you know, if we could maybe try and get more out there um, on a daily basis or a weekly basis or whatever, whatever's available to do. And I think that's actually where, you know, back on side seem to be head and shoulders above a lot of, um, other organisations simply because they're everywhere, you mm-hmm. know, and and more and more people are becoming involved and and willing to help. You know, I, I help out not because I'm I'm paid to, not because I'm forced to. Junior does the same, but because we want to help. Um, and I think that's it shows the that one there's a problem and two, but there's people willing to to help. And whether that is with you know the Graham Wilson telling his story to um, to school kids or whatever, and those hard hitting stories. Or whether it's guys who they, they see on the on sports scene coming into your school and, and speaking about it, all of a sudden you know it, there's different ways to tap into people. Um, but I think it's it's vitally important that there's there's more done not just in landmark days like like today. Junior, let me ask you this: the guys were talking earlier on about visiting a school uh, or schools where they had mental health champions. Is that something clubs should consider? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think um, to have how, how would you legitimise it though, bearing in mind. You wouldn't just mark somebody in and say, here's your mental health champion, because then socks and things start flying across the dressing room. <laughs> How do you legitimise it? Because I think it would be a good idea mm-hmm. at a club. Mm-hmm. Well, <coughs> it's a good question. But what, 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 what I would say is, is, is all it takes is for one club to embrace it and roll it out after that and see how it goes. Um, I know, as I say, I know that Libby is doing a lot in that area to do that. Um, you know, there's still there's still a bit of a stigma attached to it, but um, I think the the main thing is that it can it can it can impact on anybody at any time. And it's about mental well-being. That's what that's what it's about, and it's about making sure that everybody feels included um, and that people are there um, and people care. So as long as people realise that then I think that, you know, um, there'll be a lot more kind of inclusivity and a lot more people wanting to actually do that. As a sports scientist, how much is physical well-being related to mental well-being in terms of exercise, in terms of... (laughs) 
keeping yourself in shape. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's loads. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> well, there's no, there's loads of studies. So many studies that um that that, that prove that. Um, so again, um, when I'd finished playing, um, I think I've said, I've said it to Dawes many a times and to players, you know, many a times that um, um, I always used to go to the gym and you know and just do this one routine and I didn't really know how, you know how to eat properly and um, even though I'd, I'd, I'd be a professional footballer, um, but as soon as I went on my course. I realised, you know, the best way to eat. I realised the best way how to work out, and then my mental, my mental well-being just went through the roof, skyrocketed. I felt so much better. Um, I didn't get ill as much. I didn't get as many colds. Um, um, so, you know, it's a massive, massive impact. Um, it can make a massive, massive impact. So, what I um, would um, get people to do. Um, or to challenge people to do is just be a little bit more active than what you already are if you're not um, and then just kind of take steps from there baby steps you know and get a little bit more active each day each week um, and um, it will definitely have a positive impact on you Jules one of the things that people talk about these days is how the season the close season gets shorter and shorter and players seem to be back in pre-season a lot quicker than they ever used to be before is, is that potentially something that's going to start to impact on players and, and, and maybe affect their mental well-being as well it, it could be you know there's not a lot of downtime really between seasons now you know it used to be you had eight six or eight weeks off that's a, that's plenty of time to forget about football switch off from football completely and at the pressures of football and maybe spend that time to recharge your batteries now you know it's going to get to the stage where it's going to be two or three weeks yeah, that's that's just a whole. And even in that's those, really yeah, but even in that two or three weeks, I, you know, I speak to people. Stephen Dobby's a great example. I mean, Dobbs tells me when he comes on, he wish he knew then what yep. he knows now because he'd have been a lot, you know, bigger and and gone at bigger clubs. But he says now, even when there is the close season, he's got to exercise. He's got to keep in some kind of regime. Um, and I guess that's the same for pretty much most players now these days. Yep. So in real terms. There isn't really any downtime, even when you're on holiday or you've got that break. No, most not. players will be training. <laughs> it sounds stupid, but most players will go on holiday and they'll spend an hour or an hour and a half training the gym, going for a run, because it's in their head, it's in their mind that they've still got to come back to their clubs at a certain percentage of body fat. You know, And there's a, there's a bit of pressure there to make sure your body is in, in not tip-top condition, because that's for the time the season starts, but... You know, players don't want to come back now and be carrying extra puppy fat. They, they come back, you know, they'll take their tops off and you'll think, you, you could genuinely look at players and think you're in mid-season. Mm. But it, the season will even started yet. Junior, but how much pressure does that put on players in itself? That massive, like, you know, because what you need is you need downtime. You know, and um, you know, so and I'm guilty as charged because I'm the ones who are dishing out the, the, <laughs> the off-season programs, aren't I? So, um, but basically, what it is, everybody else is doing it. So you need to do it, right? You know, you know, you, as a player, you need to do. You need to stay fit because you come back. A lot of the times is, you know, um, the fixtures they start really early now. So you need to kind of be at a decent level. And if you're not, then you're going to get injured. It's as simple as that. And if you're injured, you're out of the team. Somebody else is going to take your space. So, you know, it's it's, it's cutthroat this industry. So you need to be on it. Um, and um, it's just the way how it's gone now. Does it encourage players to take shortcuts? <sighs> well, they don't tell me that. I think they'll always yeah. try and find. Yeah. The players will always try and find shortcuts. But yeah. are they are they shortcuts that are 
legit, are yeah. good, well, are reasonable. I think now the unfortunate thing for footballers is guys like Junior pick up on them on day one. Yeah. You know, they do so many tests now yeah. when the players come back. So players know that's what's coming. So they know these tests are going to... Junior's going to be there with the calipers to test his body fat. They're going to be, have all the, the physical tests and the mental tests now. But they know that these tests are coming. So unfortunately for players, they can tell if you've been taking shortcuts because they'll just compare you to the guy right next to you. you know, well, you, you've you right? just kind of hit on it, Junior, as well. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask you this because, mm -hmm. of course, you, you have to at some point reconcile mm -hmm. being poacher and gamekeeper. Yeah. Um, and so from that point of view, how do you do that? How do you reconcile that, that, that there's got to be a tipping point with everybody? And that goes for players as well. So there must be a, a tipping point where you think we've got to be careful that we're not driving. And, and we go back to this one size fits all thing. It, it doesn't happen anymore. It's all individually tailored to players. But how do you kind of draw the boundaries? How do you draw the red lines, if you will, in terms of how far you can push a player or how much you expect of him in terms of his diet, in terms of this, in terms of the next thing yeah. without pushing him over the edge into that black hole where he becomes depressed, where he becomes, you know, frustrated, where maybe he's just not enjoying the game any... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that, it must be a very thin line that you're treading there, surely. Well, the thing is with, with, with pushing people to the, to the limit or pushing, you know, professional um, athletes to the limit is that you need... The, the the harder you push them then then the more kind of world class they need to be at recovery so so if you've got somebody who doesn't eat that well their nutrition their, the, the you know when they go home isn't on point you know if you're pushing them so hard and then they go home and have a big mac meal then there are other um, outlets as well for them to eat at. but yeah if they go home and, and then they eat something that's not so good then, then what happens is you can start getting um, lack of energy um, um, and then obviously the kind of depression side can kick in over amount of time as well. So you need to be really careful with that and that's why things like the mid-winter break is a good thing. You know, players people, get a week off. If people cheat, right, mm -hmm. if people cheat mm -hmm. and they go home and they have, you know, fast food, mm -hmm. whatever outlet it comes from, fast food, doesn't that in itself indicate that there may be a problem? that they feel that they're doing that and that they want to do that rather than do what is right for them and good for them to be a professional footballer. Okay, that could be the case, yeah. Some could players the don't realise these things until they get older and that, like Dobie saying, he looks back. Yeah, I, I, he, thinks, he says it every time he yeah, comes and, on. and I know Dobie, and, and you know how good he is as a player and how, how good he was, mm -hmm. and even he's saying, if he'd known yeah. when he was younger, all the stuff now that Junior can show players and give to players, if he'd that, Many I spoke ago. to him just after the, the, the season shut down uh, and it was maybe about two or three weeks after the season had shut down and he was telling us what his training regime had been in those two or three weeks and <laughs> yeah. it was as if he was still, you know, the season was still on. But, but that's why I do it now because I know just how much, how much it helps because last three or four years of my of my career is just going downhill I was getting weaker um wasn't as strong as what I am now what did and that do to you mentally when you can when you when you're a player and you realize you're starting to miss those little edges yeah your powers are going and um that happened to me over the you know the last three or three or four years of, of my career and um but what I know now if I knew that back then I'd, I'd be playing at a decent level and I would have been playing you know well into my 
late 30s as well. Um, and I stopped playing when I was maybe about 34. And, um, you know, I used to fall about. And, you know, it was, it was, well, when I look back, I feel quite embarrassed, actually. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's why I do it now. And, you know, and that's why I really try and encourage people and, and the players that, you know, that, that I work with, just how important what they're doing is um, and how it will help their career. Dobbs. Uh, sorry, the duels. <laughs> talking about Dobbs for so- just looking at your career now, how have you seen it, if you like, morph from when you started to now and how your regimes have changed and how you've seen yourself benefiting? Because it's quite a good project and quite a good example, because especially being at one club for such a long time, to be able to see how different things kind of, if you like, um, evolved at Thistle but how the effect, that evolution affected you. Yeah, I mean, my career at Thistle it probably just went from strength to strength as, as the years went on, um, and probably as science started to take over. Um, you know, when I first went to Thistle, there was no sports scientist, no nutrition information. It just was, it was just expected that you knew how to look after your body. Some players would go to the gym, some wouldn't, and it, and it wasn't really forced upon anyone unless the manager physically made the team go to the, the gym it was just kind of I expected that you would look after yourself now or, or as the years progressed at Thistle technology got better the club obviously made it into the, the Premier League more money arrived we could bring in better um, one facilities technology guys like who basically a long time ago the money just wasn't there to, mm-hmm. to do these things and I, and I think for me personally, I mean, I'll still contact Junior sometimes to ask him a question, a simple, probably a daft question about nutrition, whatever it is. But I trust that he's got the knowledge and he's got the the information. And you know, there's times when he he hasn't had information, but he's went and found it for me, and I can trust that he'll do that for me. And I think that's as the years have progressed, you have to build a bit of relationships with people around the club, um, who you can trust, who have the knowledge in that department. And you have to trust people in different departments of the club to do their job to the max, really, um, which obviously brings pressure on on everyone. But you know, it's at Thistle you could see the benefits that brought. You know, we made the top six in the Premier League, and on and off the club, on and off the pitch, the club was really, really strong. But obviously, that brings pressure, um, not just for players, but for backroom staff, for managers, for coaches. But from my point of view, you know, as signs started becoming more and more available and more and more accessible I suppose my career improved or because um, as you're getting older it becomes more difficult football becomes more difficult the older you get so you end up relying on you know these techniques these methods to almost prolong careers um, and you know Junior was saying that you, it, last three or four years he could feel his power going down mm-hmm. he's given information now to, to younger players and I've been with him and I've heard him speaking to younger players as to do it now like, like, don't wait till you're 30, 31, 32 to then start using the gym. Do it when you're you know, eight, 17, 18 and you don't know where your career can go. Mm. Junior, one of the things I was going to ask you about is is the equilibrium between the physical and the mental side of the game. Because obviously sports science, I, I would think, is more focused on the physical side of the game, enhancing physical performance. Is there, a, is there a chance that the physical performance can overtake the mental fortitude of an individual and, and then cause a problem? 
um, or the other way around. The, the physical side of it doesn't reach the level of the mental fortitude of an individual. Yeah, I, I think I think the the, the mental side uh, is, is is the most important thing. But it's, but it's but the it's one that's least focused on. Yeah, but but it's, it's tapping into it. It's, it's I think it's it's a little bit of an unknown. That's what that's what it is. And um, um, you know, it's it's hard. It's really hard to kind of delve into it and and really kind well, of should clubs it. should clubs be trying to focus more on it uh, and put more behind that kind of side of things because it seems to me that. There has to be that equilibrium. There has to be that tandeming of the mental strength and the physical fitness, the physical performance. Yeah. Um, well, well. Uh, actually, in my in, in my undergrad, I I've done two years of sports psychology, and um, um, it was, as I say, you could go on for years and years and years with it, right? Um, and um, you can study for years and years and years with it. Um, and um, you know, you try and use little snippets here and there, but 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 the the, the main thing. I find that that with with players, and I've seen a lot of players come and go, and I played with a lot of players, and I've worked with a lot of players on on this side of it, is the ones who are at the top of the tree are the ones who have got the psychological aspect down down packed, and you know, and and they've got a good grasp of it. Um, and um, I find that most players have have of have got the same kind of ability, but it's the ones who have got who have got their head right. And who can deal with pressure um, are the ones that kind of you know you know go that step further, and um, clubs do look at it. You know, there, there's a psychologist um, um, who comes in at St Mirren, um, and the players can go and speak to him. Um, we when when it was at Thistle, yeah, um, well, yeah, yeah, got got, got a psychologist <coughs> in as well. Um, but the thing is with that is that you need to. It's like a muscle when you need to train it and you need to keep you need to keep sticking at it and just because it maybe doesn't work straight away, you really need to stick at it and it could take could take somebody a month and then they see improvements. Some people might take ten months. Right. You need to stick at it. You need let, to stick at it. Let me ask let me ask you both this before I I've got a call on which I want to take. Um but let me ask you both this. Are we through sports psychology, sports science Whatever we want to call it now, are we in danger of letting the the tail wag the dog? I th- I think then it's down to how the manager manages his club. Um, you know, these all these additional services, psychologists, sports signs, are great. What happens on the pitch to a to a football manager is is the main thing. You know, football's a results business. Everybody understands that. People will lose jobs as managers if you don't get the results, but. I think one thing managers now are becoming a bit more flexible to is the impact that a psychologist can bring, the effect that a sports scientist can bring. And if that's just 1% or 2%, they'll see that as a massive benefit to their team. My point, I think, is, Dules, to be honest with you, and I'm not saying it's right, I'm just asking the question and and, and I see what you're saying. My point is, though, there is a general consensus that art and science don't mix. Mm-hmm. And football's an art form, mm-hmm. and yet science is taking a bigger and bigger and bigger slice of what football is all about. Yeah. That's what I mean. Is are we in danger of letting the tail wag the dog? No, I, I don't think so. Um, we're there as a support. We're a support system, and you know, you get you got Sam Allardyce for example. You know, he's really big into his sports science, and um, but when it comes to a Saturday. Um, He'll be there on a Friday and he'll do his coaching, um, the technical side of it, 
and then you know the team was set up in a certain way and he's had a level of success that actually got him to the England job mm. so you know I think it's a case of you just it's a support system alright look I've got somebody else on the phone that I want to talk to just now I don't, have you both got headphones I know you have duels have, have you got a it's, set of headphones just, just the one right you and I'll get a set of headphones and plug them in so you can hear them uh, because I want to bring on someone who actually you'll both know because he is an ambassador for back on side uh, and he should be on the phone now uh, Christian Nari good evening how are you I'm good, thank you. Good evening. Christian, last time I spoke with you, it was on the back of a, a, an article that came out uh, where you had been in a very, very dark place and you explained to us how you used to go home and just sit and you would be homesick and miss your family uh, and everything like that. And I guess looking at it now as an ambassador for Back On Side, it would have been an absolute godsend if they'd have been around then. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, I was really in that place at the time. And the things that I know now, that I studied and um, that I learned since that, uh, would have been totally, uh, I would be in a totally different state. Um, you know, with, with depression, I don't think there is a, a particular answer. Uh, no one's got like the secret of uh, healing people. But the things and we could with comment to everyone is to talk and um if i knew this at the time i wouldn't have been in this place for for a long time and you you were in a particularly bad place i mean i think i'm right in saying uh at the time when we discussed it you had kind of walked into the sea and all sorts of things like that and, and really there was everything in your life on the face of it everything in your life should have been right but very little of it was right well um wait, um what i wanted to show to people then everything was right that's what happened uh most for most of people uh, suffering from uh, mental health you show people then everything is right um but inside that's when it's not right. Behind closed door, that's when it's not right. When you go home and you've got no one to talk with, even when you've got someone that you don't want to talk to because you feel ashamed to talk about stuff like that, that's when you're in danger. That's when the, the trouble starts and that's when you dig your own grave. So what you need to do is just speak up about it, speak about it. Find someone who, who, who doesn't matter who it is. And that's when back on site is, is really good. It's, because they, um, they give you the attention that you need, they give you the help that you need, and they don't they don't have the answer that's what you're looking for, but they'll be there for you at any time. Guys, let me ask you all three of you, because you're all three of you ambassadors for Back On Side. Is it something that you yourself, you find particularly cathartic in as much as you look at it in there, well, in, in Christian's case, obviously, it's slightly different, but you think they're for the grace of God. Junior? Yeah. Um, I think that <clears throat> things, things kind of turn kind of full circle, and I think that, you know, things will happen to you, and then you meet people in your life, and then something happens, and it's like, you know, it's like a bit of a, um, a light kind of switch goes off. And... Um, and I'm a, I'm a big believer that you people come into your life for certain reasons, and um, it was just I was just I was kind of just just scrolling through, and I came across the back on side with with Libby, and um, I reached out and we spoke, and um, it's like, would you like to become an ambassador? I was like, 
most definitely. Um, so, as I say, you know, I think things happen for a reason, and um, and I'm just so glad to see it growing the way it's growing, and so many people getting involved. Um, it's really, really good to see. Dills, I mean, Christian's from a, an era which is, you know, way back in the dark, distant past. Yet again, this common thread comes through about not being able to talk to people, wanting to portray that everything is fine. Yeah, and I think it's, it, you know, Christian's had a long career, and you see just how long it stems back that there's been a massive problem, there's been a barrier there, even up until quite recently. Um, and I think now it's it, we spoke about social media. We spoke about how how damaging it can be at times. You know, if, if Christian looks back at the start of his career, social media probably wasn't highly available. But those those moments when he goes home and he's got nobody to talk to, they're still there. Mm-hmm. You know? And then even in the modern day, they're still there. They go home, they close the door, and you're in your flat yourself. You're in your house yourself. But now you've also yeah. got social media, and and players will instantly pick their phone up. So now you've got those two things together, you're sitting in silence, you're already feeling down, and now you're looking at your Twitter or whatever it is and seeing the abuse that you're taking, which which can only make it worse. Um, but, you know, ju- just what Junior said, I, I got Graham's part of my testimonial committee and obviously got to know him very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I listened to his stories and I was absolutely stunned just... It, it, listening um, to, to how his life had, had unfolded and also very proud of how he turned it round. Um, and, and, you know, the man I met uh, to become part of my committee was, wasn't the guy that, that I was hearing these stories about. Yeah. And, you know, from my point of view, I was thinking, well, what a massive achievement. That I, I can't put these two people together. So I can only say that, you know, Graham will tell you that back on side was a huge part in, keep, in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he says before that back on side pretty much saved his life. So, you know, I, I was looking out for the other side and I was thinking, well, if I can help, how can I get involved to help? Because I, I can't picture this Graham Wilson that you, I'm hearing these stories about. I only know the person that I know personally. And they're two different per, uh, different people. Um, so clearly back on side have a massive a massive impact. So, Christian, let me ask you, uh, because you said about people back on site being there for you to talk to and things like that, do you find now that you're more willing to talk than you were before or do you still feel a little bit inhibited about sharing your experiences or how you're feeling at a specific time with anyone else? Um, just now, you know, I feel like... Uh, I, I, I'm an example, and I need to show the good example. So, if eventually I could be struggling for in some situation, I will talk about it. Because you can't ask someone to talk about it when you don't even talk about it yourself. So, I will I will talk about it as soon as I feel low for whatever reason. I will talk about it. But those are things like um, I don't know who we are talking. Social media, the the. One thing that I, I learned and do and make me getting better is to get off social media. Mm-hmm. Once you're off social media, everything gets better because social media, that's when you read the abuse from from people. Mm-hmm. That's when you you compete yourself with someone you don't even know. And social media can be a kind of a big something like digging your grave. 
just by looking at it all the time and paying attention to this. So there's a, the way, when I wasn't feeling well, I closed social media. I closed any um, Facebook, Twitter, all those things because I didn't want to, to put my head somewhere who could make me feel even worse the way I was. Is social media becoming <laughs> less of a social community and more of a social disease? I think it became an addiction for some people. It became an addiction. Who's got the best, the most light? Who's, who's got the, the best picture? Who's got the best things? And that's when it's going wrong. You compete yourself with someone you don't even know. You compete with someone with a different lifestyle than yours. And unfortunately, some people can be weak about this. And then you start to, to put yourself in dark place where maybe you are not in a dark place. And that's when it's, it's very dangerous. You know, it's interesting you say that, and I've got to say I'm guilty of this because, as I say, I was a I was a social media novice eighteen months ago, uh, and then when I got to five hundred thousand impressions in a month, I was trying to hit a million. When I got to a million, I was trying to hit one point five million. Then I was going to two million, uh, and then I was pushing just recently to get to three million. Got to three million, uh, and then you, you kind of become inactive either because you're too busy or certain things happen international breaks for a start mm -hmm. uh, and you start to see them drop a little bit the impressions from 3 million to 2.5 million and you think what can I do to get it so I'm just I'm guilty of this mm -hmm. and you know hearing someone talk about it like Christian I now think good god if I got how much of a problem have I got with social media it shows no, seriously, I'm not, I'm not taking the mickey. I'm serious about this because I'm now thinking about it, thinking, I'm doing this. Yeah. I'm part of this problem, potentially. It shows how easily it can, it can lead to, to you know, I, Guys, yeah. I'm 63. <laughs> Social media, Twitter, you know, good God. <laughs> Twitter is what a budgie used to do when I was a kid. You know, and I'm getting obsessed by this thing. And I have been obsessed by it. No, it's a, it draws you in. It is, it is a phenomenon that's, that's, that's happened in this last five, six, seven years. And, um, you know, you know you, you're not the first person, are you? You're not the, first. the only thing that grounds me is, I think, who in the right mind wants to... Three million people want to read anything I've put on there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but it is scary. It is, you and I can't hear a word you're saying when you do that, so I don't know why you're doing it. All it does is cut that voice off in my head. <laughs> um, listen, the, 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 the way that social media, again, comes through as a recurrent strand with this... Um, you would think that clubs, and I don't know, you might do it, St Mirren, they might do it at Air United. I think, I might even do this myself, I think we should set up classes for people to actually learn how to use social media constructively. We did it at Thistle, actually. Really? We, yeah, Michelle Evans was at Thistle and she set up a, a social media training day, really. I think it's during, a great idea. During pre-season one day when, when we were hanging about doing nothing, we were brought in and it, and it was a media training that, you, you know, you were learning... Not only just social media, but how to speak to newspapers, how to speak to the, the TV. Yeah, I could have taught you that. And it was, <laughs> and it, but it was a simple. And that'd have been cheaper. And, and and players actually enjoyed it. But then when coming into the season, we had a social media ban the night before a game <laughs> until the month the Monday after. So it, it was Very about good. it stopped players going on and, and ranting after the game because all it did was attract attention mm. and it attracted bad publicity and it attracted people to then start commenting on. 
your post. Yeah. So give it 24 hours, calm down first, and then, yeah. then put yeah. something out. Yeah. Junior, can I... Sorry, go on. I need to. I need to go. <laughs> can I, can I just can I just ask you very very quickly, and it can be a one quest, It can be a one word answer. Are you in a better place now? Definitely. Okay. Listen. Thanks for calling in and talking to us, and and uh, keep up the good work with the uh, back on side. Thank you very much. That's Christian yes, Naddy uh, talking to us tonight. Uh, this social media problem seems to be in terms of people's mental health um, as much of a problem as anything else. And I'm not quite sure how we can deal with it. I, th- I think part of the problem is obviously the anonymity of it. You know, you're hiding behind a shield. Definitely, definitely. I think that um, I think people have touched on it before. Um, you know, in, the, in in the recent weeks, that if there's some way of 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 putting your um, your actual um, information in, and there's no other way of of, of actually get, making an account i think that's a that's a yep. way of actually yep. doing it isn't it i think you know why they don't do that you know you'd have to ask them um but um but but i think as well it's, it's about perceptions as well and i think that when you see somebody um we're all different but when you see somebody you know making a negative comment you know a lot of the time um it's somebody who is just kind of making a throwaway comment they don't even really you know don't necessarily mean it and um the way how i deal with it is i just think well that's three people. That's three people out of six million, you know. And there's always going to be one or two people with mm. a negative comment. So that's how I deal with it. Everybody's different, though. But. Yeah. Uh, Are you on social understand. media, Chris? I, I'm. I'm not a big social media kind of person. Um, that's just a personal thing for me. I can't be bothered with, with most of it. Um, but I, I do understand the attraction of it. I understand why people want to do it, and and there are benefits to it. Let's be honest. You know, even even sharing great information. Uh, on days like this, and, and passing the the information around, it'll go around social media, around the world in an hour. So I think it, that for that point of view, it's great. It's just the you know the, the drawbacks on the other side that there can be. It's like any virus, though. It can lie dormant in you, and then when it flares up, it, it you know it can kill you. Absolutely, and I think it's it's proven to be very addictive um, and becoming a real habit for for people as well. Junior, what's the what's the policy at St Mirren on social media? Do you have one, and is it something that you know the club get involved in with players in terms of guidance, in terms of any set rules? Um, I don't know the actual policy um, because I'm normally in my office doing doing my work, um, so I'm not in in many of the meetings. Um, but most um, clubs will have something where yeah, I mean, if players will. if players step out of line on social media, they'll be fined immediately. You know, and it's happened countless places. That, that, you know. General manager, the chairman, whoever it is, if if you step out and if you bring the club into bad light, really, and you disappear. Yeah, yeah, then you know, the, it's it goes well and above. You know, the sports scientists that we go straight to the top and they deal with it. Listen, we're getting close to the end of the show, but just in the last couple of minutes that we've got, one of the things I want to ask you is: <clears throat> Have we made real progress with mental welfare in football, or are we just papering over the cracks? No, I think it's, we're making the right steps. I think that you know, just you know, myself being here and and, and those um, and um, you know the the organisation that Libby's um, and founded. I think that it's getting there um, and it's growing, and you can see it growing all the time. I think it's a really really good thing. Um, you know, I I, I spoke to um, 
manager before I came in that I was going to be doing this, and he, you know he was really you know supportive of it, and he's you know you know good luck. Yeah, we've had so, Jim on lots of times, and he's he's been yeah. great when he's been on. So yeah, yeah I, I would imagine that he would be very supportive. Yeah. I would imagine really when we talk about it and people talk about it within clubs, everybody's very supportive of it, but. It's one of those things, again, where actions speak louder than words. And it's it's not just about saying it's a good idea. You've got to put that good idea into practice and make it work. Yeah, that's what I would say. You know, it's it's fine everybody saying these are great ideas, these are great organisations, but you've got, you've got to you step forward, you know, and make that action because you hear everybody who does it say it's the best thing they've, mm. they've ever done. Um, but, again, they've got to be educated enough to, to do that. I think it can only get better, let's be honest, because... There's obviously been a big problem there, and now back on sides getting bigger and bigger um, on a weekly basis, a daily basis. Um, so these issues can only be tackled right. a lot more quickly. Okay, thanks guys very much for being with us tonight, and uh, my all my other guests, Andy Olsen and Adam Todd are back with you with uh, pole position next. I'll be back with you tomorrow with Hugh Buns and Paul Hegarty uh, to review tonight's international football. Love music, live sport. Talking football with Bill Young on Rock Sport Radio.